0: Hi, this is Ina, and you're listening to Him Being. Tonight we will read "Smaller and Smaller Circles" by Felisa Batakan. It's in the line of mystery, crime, suspense genre of novels, and it follows. Two Jesuit priests, one forensic anthropologist and the other psychologist on the hunt for a serial killer in the notorious dump city of Payatas. Horrible weather. Because science looks up. Water is running in rivulets off Jerome's wet umbrella. Between the beating of the rain on the roof and the steady thump of the music blaring from the stereo component system, science didn't hear the other man come into the room. Jerome folds up the umbrella, props it up against the wall in a corner beside the door, looks around. Where's Tato? Tato Ampil is Science's young autopsy assistant, a med school dropout who decided in his fourth year that he really wanted to be a musician of some sort, although after nearly two years he hasn't quite figured out what sort yet. He just missed him, Science says. The surgical mask he wears over his nose and mouth muffles his warm, deep voice. Hot date. Lucky guy, at least he's someplace warm. The air-conditioned room is inhospitably cold, colder, of course, because of the weather outside. The high-ceiling laboratory is a study in white. White walls, white floors, white ceiling. Almost all the equipment and furnishing in it is shiny stainless steel. From the shelves suspended from the sturdy brackets fixed to the walls to the two kernies pushed to one corner. Mounted on the wall opposite the door is a large whiteboard about 4 feet high by 6 feet wide. Close by stands, a do-it-yourself workstation incorporating a computer table, bookshelves and cabinets in honey-coloured wood. A spanking new computer sits in the middle of the station with a very large monitor. Science bought it with a grant money from a Japanese foundation. It is used, among other things, to construct three-dimensional skull photo superimpositions which help in the identification of the dead, a tedious task for forensic anthropologists before advances in computer technology made it simpler. Gray's Anatomy works by Boas. Kuhn, Lacan, Malinowski, Darwin's The Origin of the S- of Species, Lentz Steiner's The Specificity of Serological Reactions, and Callman and Swenson's DNA in the Courtroom, a trial watcher's guide, shared the bookshelves with a Complete set of Asterix comic books, yellowing reams of classic guitar scores, glossy full-color volumes on the works of Margaret, Decherico, Modigliani. The exhibition catalog from the nineteen ninety-five Monet exp- exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago. On hanging shelves and wall cabinets scattered throughout the room are odds and ends of equipment and supplies science uses in his work plaster casts of skulls and teeth with paper tags dangling from them on bits of string sealed specimen jars of several sizes with or without sundry discolored bits of unpleasantness floating in them most visitors find it unsettling to talk to the priest and play in plain sight of this particular collection. The jars demand attention and usually get it, no matter how strong the outsiders resolve to ignore them. Depending on what type of case he happens to be handling at the moment, science will often wrap his long fingers around a particular jar, prop it up on his chest, there into its contents, meditating on vein and muscle and membrane for hours on end. On a small table, Telesphoro, science Prize tempered ceramic model of human torso with removable, vividly colored polyurethane organs, stands upright on his cut-off thighs, a navy blue New York Mets baseball cap perched rackishly atop his headless neck. He, too, was purchased with grant money, this time from a Baltimore firm that specializes in casting anatomical models for use in medical schools. A clothesline stretches across another wall. garlanded with the strips of photographic negatives processed by science himself in the small dark room off to one side of the laboratory. On other walls hang huge glass-framed reproductions of four of Leonardo da Vinci's anatomical studies. The organs of the thorax, the heart, and the main arteries profile studies of a skull facing left, the principal female organs. Jerome looks at Science, listens briefly to the music, and rolls his eyes. R.E.M. Science smiles, and the crowd's feet fan out from the corners of his eyes. The eyes of a man who smiles often. Ah, there's hope for you yet. Gus Science is tall, a little over six feet. The metal autopsy table at which he is working has been adjusted so that he won't have to bend too far over it, and he has the wiry muscularity that comes with zero body fat. He has angular mestizo features, thick, wavy hair graying at the temples, rock star hair. Jerome often kisses him. Jerome fiddles with the volume control knob until he is satisfied. Even after nearly two decades, he has yet to get used to science performing autopsies to very loud music. You're too old for this. The stereo component system is surrounded by stacks of CDs and cassette tapes. Andres Schiff and Glenn Gould playing Bach Partitas, Julian Bream, and Manuel Barrueco on the guitar. A large collection of Gregorian chant recordings from way before Gregorian chants became hip, and The Clash, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, The Sex Pistols, The Grateful Dead. R.E.M. is a recent addition to his post-mortem repertoire. Science raises his head. He's grinning under the surgical mask. Don't knock it. It's the closest either of us will ever get to sex. Jerome tens shock with open mouth and bug eyes reprobate. Why, thank you. Coffee in the pot if you want it. The younger priest shakes water from his hair and then busies himself with getting a cup of coffee. Father Jerome Lucero is about five foot nine of a physical type that is usually described as compact or solid. Beefy arms, broad shoulders tapering down into a slim waist and hips, wavy hair tamed in a severe crew cut, wide, dark eyes. He has an intensity, a seriousness about him that makes him older than his 37 years. Only the kinest observer would note that he walks with an almost imperceptible limp. He sips the coffee, then makes a face. Ooh, that's bad. Science pulls his mask down beneath his shin, his hand encased in a stained surgical glove, cost-cutting. Jerome notices that the older priest is lisping a little. How's that tooth? It's the other man's turn to grimace. Don't talk to me about it. Jerome laughs quietly. Science has an impacted tooth in the left side of his mouth that has been drew for extraction for several months. It has now nearly rotted through. Whenever the subject of dental work comes up, science is transformed from open minded, logical man of science to fearful, petulant child. The older priest scowls at Jerome's amusement. Vos vestra servet meos mi healing quit mores. Jerome nods in mock solemnity. Keep to your own ways and leave mine to me. Yes, well, I'm quite certain Pet Shark wasn't talking about tooth decay. You realized, of course, that putting off could be, bod- could be bad for your heart. I'll tell you what's bad for my heart. Pain and terror, that's what's bad for my heart. Saiyan straightens up with a groan. He hunches his shoulders to relieve the tension in the muscles there and then relaxes them again before surveying his work now in the final stages. Looks like number six to me. Jerome walks over to the metal table where the remains of a child's body lie. Its back rests on a rubber block, pushing the chest up and out for better examination. Visera gone? Pretty much heart missing. Feast bailed off. Neat blade work. Jerome bends at the waist, tilting his head to one side to look obliquely into the chest cavity. Skull? Science nods. Heavy blow from the fracture lines. It looks like it came from the right Jerome straightens up. About how old? My guess, about 12 or 13. Jerome picks up a pair of surgical gloves from the stainless steel trolley and pulls them on. The rubber snapping against the skin on the underside of his wrist. He quickly surveys the other injuries. Genitals removed. He leans forward and... Runs the tip of his forefinger in a straight line beneath the child's exposed chin bone, face played just like the others. Science nods, clean horizontal slit under the chin from ear to ear. Jerome looks up at him. What do we know about the knife? Again, very likely a small blade, about six inches long. No more than an inch wide. Something easy to handle for close detailed work. Very sharp. No serration. And we've got the same grooves on the chin bone. Science pulls off his gloves and drops them into a pocket reserved for medical waste. He walks to a drafting table to one side of the room. The table is a cast off from the university's mass communications department. It was originally used by film students for drawing cartoons. In the center of it is a translucent circle of hard, movable plastic with a light bulb underneath. He flips on the switch and slides two sets of photographic negatives onto the plate motioning for the other man to look. Jerome follows him, stripping his own gloves off as he goes and dropping them into the same bucket. He squints into the magnifying glass science holds over the set of negatives. Black and white photos of thin, scratchy marks gouged through flesh and into the child's chin bone. They're a bit difficult to see, with the flesh still clinging to the bone, but they're there if you look closely. Unlike this boy, most of the other victims were examined by science either weeks or months after they had been killed. By then, much of the flesh that had remained after the flaying had decomposed, revealing far more of the bone surface and any instrument marks that had been made on it, than with this victim. younger priest stares down through the glass for a few moments. Long marks and deep. Think it was the same blade used on the torso? No, the blade notches on the ribs are slightly thicker. Science moves the magnifying glass over the second set and waits for Jerome while he examines them. This second set of negatives was taken from the sternum and some of the ribs exposed after evisceration of the body. Could have been the tip. Science frowns and shakes his head, still too thick. No, I don't think it was even a blade at all. He switches off the light as Jerome moves back toward the body. Ask me about the teeth. Father Gus, what about the teeth? Pitting, a mouth breather just like some of the others. The front teeth of the of three of the five other victims they've seen had minute pits, invisible to the naked eye. This showed that they had breathed often through their mouths, a sign of chronic respiratory disease. Their families could rarely afford meat or fish, so and so the children were raised on diets short on protein, long on carbohydrates and other soft, mushy, insubstantial food. The lack of protein in their diets also partly explained how small they were as they hit their teens. Sexual assault? Nope, Jerome nods, but the excision of the genitals, I still can't fully account for that. He thinks back to previous case reports and clinical assessments. That he had come across during his studies in abnormal psychology. Some sexual conflict in there somewhere. He thrust his hands deep into the pockets of his jeans. Time of death? When he was found, he was a mass of maggots. The weather's been both humid and wet. I wouldn't put it at more than two, three days, four at most but highly unlikely. Science walks over to his desk and puts on his reading glasses, then picks up a clipboard and squints down at a document typed in smudgy carbon on a sheet of onion skin. Like the others, there was very little blood found around the body, suggesting that he killed them elsewhere. Wherever he does it, there's going to be a lot of blood, so it must be fairly well hidden, or at least somewhere easy to clean, easy to flash out, a bathroom, a garage. He would have had to change clothes too before he dumped the bodies to avoid suspicion. Jerome runs a hand over his face and holds it over his mouth for a few seconds before walking to the whiteboard. Science joins him there. Six is the heading of a new column on the extreme right of the board. Down the leftmost column, marking out the rows, is a series of categories. Age, sex, date found, approximate date of death, mutilations. The body was found on the seventh, of this month, Jerome says. He picks up a marker, stares at the blank space at the end of a row titled the approximate de- date of death, and starts tapping the board as though counting. Then he glances over his shoulder at science. So we're looking at what, medical, legal, officer says the fifth, most likely. <clears throat> Drew turns to the whiteboard again and writes July 5 in the space. He caps the marker, puts it on the whiteboard ledge, and steps back. That's when he notices Science, ah, uh, staring hard at the board. His brow furrowed in concentration. What's wrong? A light seems to go off in Science's head. We've been looking at the dates all this time. Right. Science is now a flurry of long limbs and motion, as he darts away from the board and back toward his desk. He shuffles through the piles of papers, folders, and paraphernalia until he finds what he is looking for. Maybe we should. Maybe we should have been looking more closely at the days. He holds the desk calendar aloft. Jerome immediately sees where he is going with this. Got it. He turns back quickly to the whiteboard. Okay. First boy found February 2nd. Medical legal says approximate date of death was the night or day before. February was the second Sunday. Approximate date of death was Saturday. Jerome pens the days and below the dates. Second boy, found March third. Date of death the first. The third was a Monday. Date of death Saturday. Jerome writes, and goes to the next row down the line. Third boy, found April sixth. Date of date that date of death. The night or day before sunday and saturday for may 5th date of de- death the third monday and saturday they pause a moment to absorb this then science says go on fifth boy found june 10th approximate death of death the 7th, Tuesday and Saturday, and this one, the 7th and the 5th, Monday and Saturday. Science looks up from the calendar to study the new information on the board. That's the first Saturday of every month since February. Emil sits by himself in Father Science Faculty Office. In the chill of the room, he can feel acutely the wetness of the socks inside his shoes, the dampness of the legs of his trousers from the knees down. He crosses his arm over his chest, keeping his fingers tucked into his armpits. A storm is raging outside, and the government has hoisted Typhoon Signal number 2 over several parts of Luzon, including Metropolitan Manila. The branches of the trees on the campus wimp back and forth with every shift in the direction of the wind. The rain lashes against the window panes. Occasionally, a plain or flowered or patterned umbrella bobs up and down just outside the glass. Someone caught in the fury of the elements. The door opens, it's God. Science, struggling with the soaking wet umbrella that has been turned inside out by the wind. Jerome Lucero follows close behind, his umbrella in somewhat better shape. Oh Emil, I'm sorry we've had to wait so long, Science says, moving forward with both hands Extended the grasp of the parish priest in a warm, if wet, handshake. It's okay, Father Science, Father Lacero. Science takes the umbrellas and leaves them to drip dry inside a plastic pocket in one corner of the room. Coffee? He asks Emil. Yes, please. A cup is poured and gratefully accepted. Emil takes a sip then blows on the surface of the coffee to cool it down. (laughs) Nice day for a super typhoon, Jerome says, pulling up a chair. Have classes been suspended in your district, Father Emil? Emil nods early this morning. Half of the students had already turned up. Jerome grunts in disapproval. Huh. You'd think they would have learned to suspend classes early enough after all these years. It's not like they didn't know that typhoon was coming until this morning. Science sits back behind his desk and turns to Emil. So he prompts. Emil sets down his coffee cup and begins wringing his hands trying to calm himself before asking questions. Is it one of our boys? Science pauses a moment. We can't be absolutely certain yet, but it's definitely definitely the same set of mutilations. <clears throat> My God, Emil crosses himself. Why is doing this? Jerome stands, pulls up the blinds to allow more grey daylight into the room. And if I knew the answer to that question, Emil, he says to himself, we might be able to stop him from doing it again. He keeps his eyes focused on some vague spot outside the windows, looking but not really seeing and does not respond. For a moment, the room is still and silent, save for the sound of the wind and rain outside. Science clasps his hands together on top of his desk. We don't know yet. Honestly, we may never know. But you can help. You can tell your parishioners to keep an eye out for suspicious characters and warn the kids about staying out in the dump late. Jerome nods. Do it this discreetly trying not to create the panic whoever it is we want to be careful not to alert him to the fact that the authorities are already looking for him so we wait for him to make a mistake emile frowns i know it sounds contrary to common sense emile jerome says but if he feels threatened he may go into hiding And there's a chance we'd never find him again and there's nothing to suggest that he'd stop doing this if he were forced to flee to another place Emil choose on this for a moment all right Father Gus I'll do what you advise I just hope you manage to find him soon the people aren't stupid they're already asking questions The fear is growing. It's a poor community, and they're used to being ignored by the powers that be. If that fear turns to anger, well, you know very well what can happen. I know, Emil, and I can promise you, the situation is not being ignored. He glances at Jerome. certainly not by us. This is how it happens in Jerome's dreams. Always it begins with him standing in the dark and the rain. He is alone, dressed as if for sleep in loose-fitting shorts and t-shirt. Rubber slippers on his feet. Always it is very cold. And then he hears it, a child's voice screaming for help. He starts running. First this way, then that, slipping in the mud and slime, losing first one slipper, then the other, leaving deep, gouged tracks where his feet slide. Dirt lodges deep under his toenails and fingernails. When he claws the mud, to regain his balance. He runs until his heart can pump no more, and his lungs give out and his legs ache. Shouting for the child, Tell me where you are, talk to me, I'll find you. And then he realizes his voice is no longer his own, it is more a child's voice. And again he stumbles in the mud and the garbage, legs failing him, arms failing him, and then the hand on his shoulder, rough and hard, showing him down. He can smell the muck, warm, moist, sweet with rot as his face is pushed into it. Then he turns, he tries to turn, and he can almost see the man's face, and then the hot breath on his cheek and words, words he can't understand, spoken in a whisper that seems like a thick, slow churning of blood in his ears. The man's spittle falling in his face like tiny shards. <laughs> Always the rock first and then the blade, sharp and slim and cold. When he awakes in the safety of his own bed, he's bathed in sweat. He shakes his head to clear his mind and waits in the stillness for his labored breathing to return to normal. He entangles his legs from the blanket, swings them over the edge of the bed, and feels in the dark with his feet for his rubber sleepers. He goes into the bathroom, switches on the light. Jerome reaches for the tap, cool water rushing. He bends forward and splashes it on his face. When he is done, he looks into the small mirror on the medicine cabinet his eyes seem to have lost their whites they are round and deep and dark black holes full of unanswered questions his face still dripping water is pale and thin paler and thinner than it has ever been since this whole ugly business began in the quiet spaces between his clinical practice and counseling his teaching and his religious duties these killings have consumed him occupied his thoughts filled him with dread yet they call to him as they call to science and neither of them can turn away and he said to them well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Mark chapter 7 verses 6 to 9. When Jerome opens the door to science office, he sees Science standing by an open window lost in thought. Hey, he says, but science doesn't turn. Jerome glances at the desk and sees a letter lying open on it. It's creased in several places and he can imagine science crushing it in one of his large hands, anger coursing through the long fingers before smoothing it out again. Jerome stands there for a while waiting for Science to say something. When he doesn't, the younger priest quietly volunteers. I'm sorry. Science keeps his eyes fixed on a cluster of coconut trees on a stretch of campus lawn, visible from the window. Bud rat, he says, finally. Jerome looks up at him, confused. Excuse me? Bud rat. Science repeats, I've told the head of facilities management about the bud rat on those trees. He won't listen to me. It started with one tree. Now three others are infected. Jerome moves towards the window, glances out at the trees, then back at science, puzzled. You're thinking three mortality at this moment? The first three is good is too far gone. Some days when the wind blows in the right direction, you can smell it, decomposing tree tissue. Okay, the end of the word curls upward, like a question, and Jerome stares at him, frowning. I'm afraid I don't understand. It's a fungus, you see, phytophora palmivora. It attacks the heart of the palm. I knew that's what it was when I saw that the topmost leaf was dead, the fungus eats its way, it's its way down, and through the tree. Right, Jerome takes a deep breath. Before long, he too is staring at the trees. Cars and students go up and down the small road that borders the lawn. One student, seeing the two priests at the window smiles and waves at them but the men fail to notice and she continues on her way are there others there will be science moves away from the window toward the desk looking grimly down at the letter that's the nature of any kind of rot if you don't stop it it keeps going it will keep going until it destroys the very organism that feeds it. <coughs> Jerome, Jerome folds his arms across his chest and leans against the window frame, observing science. You know the cardinal won't change his mind. The matter is closed as far as he's concerned. Science's face darkens with a tightly controlled fury. It is not closed. It will never be closed. Not until Ramirez is made to answer for what he's done. Jerome is startled by by the phone ringing. The sound loud and shrill in Science's small office. When the older priest doesn't move to answer it, he asks, You want me to get this? Science nods and Jerome picks up. Yes? It's Susan, an administrative officer in the sociology and anthropology department where science teaches, and he's de facto secretary. Yes, he is. Hang on a moment while I ask him. He claps a hand over the mouthpiece and whispers, Susan's asking if you want lunch. Science shakes his head, waves the offer away not once looking up from the ladder. Jerome hesitates then returns to the call. Hey Susan thanks but he's not hungry just yet and he's a pile he has a pile of things to attend to. He'll probably pop down to the cafeteria when he's starving. You know how he is. A pause, a chuckle. He'll scarf down something from the pastry case. On the way to his afternoon class, don't worry about him, he's a big boy now. He wonders if Susan can detect the artificial cheer in his voice. Okay, see you. When he sets the receiver down, he realizes the science has not moved. Look, you've been chasing him through the system for more than a decade. The cardinal just moves him around. The children won't talk because they know nothing will happen. He's made powerful friends. What else can you do that you haven't already done? Science Size. I honestly don't know, Jerome, but I have to do something. This can't go on. Father Isagani Ramirez is a diocesan priest serving under the Archdiocese of Manila. For many years, he served as a parish priest at a parish in Quezon City. Until Rumors of inappropriate conduct with minors began to surface. Science become, became involved when one of his former pupils, a quiet, intelligent young man who had been struggling to get through university, attempted suicide. When science tried to find out why, he learned, among other things, that he had been molested as a child by Ramirez. Science sought help to verify Youngman's claims and later found reason to believe them true. But a report to the archdiocese was met with silence. Months after that, science received news that Ramirez had merely been transferred to another parish. Science was incensed but he was advised to think carefully about taking any further action. So, like any good Jesuit, he reflected, he prayed, he sought guidance and discernment. In the end, his conscience told him to continue to press for further investigation of Ramirez's misconduct and information on the decision to move him to another location. In his new parish, Ramirez, a charismatic speaker who could keep a crowd entrailed and whose charming, easygoing, even gossipy manner endeared him to people, quickly found wealthy backers to help him set up what was supposed to be a charity shelter for orphans and street children in the area. Ten Lunga ni Cristo, Refuge of Christ had twenty beds initially but soon expanded to thirty to forty and now seventy beds. Science watched all this from afar, unhappy that his pleas went unanswered for years. Even more unhappy that Ramirez was now in a position of even greater access to and power over children and preteens. But just when it seemed completely hopeless, a nun, Sister Miriam Tagibao, came to him out of the blue with suspicions of her own. She had been helping out at the shelter for two years and been disturbed by certain things she had seen and by the atmosphere of secrecy and unease that had been evolving slowly there. Her disclosures, credible to science as well as Two other experts, whom he consulted, including Jerome, seemed to confirm science's worst fears about Ramirez's involvement in Kanluan. It was with Sister Miriam's help that science brought forward a set of fresh complaints against Ramirez, and this time he argued strongly for a criminal investigation rather than a church inquiry. But Ramirez had powerful friends within the church hierarchy and in society, and Science was shut out of the ensuing church investigation. One by one, the children and teenagers who had been willing to, des- to testify dropped out, fearful and intimidated. Science himself had by now earned a reputation for being a bit of troublemaker and Sister Miriam was mysteriously reassigned to distant Cotabato city. The outcome of this low secretive inquiry arrived today in the form of a letter from Cardinal Rafael Meneses. It is, as science had feared, yet another transfer of parish. And Ramirez, while instructed to minimize contact with Kanlungan's wards, remains executive director of the charity. He'll keep doing the same thing, no matter which parish he's rotated to, no matter what project he takes on. And the charity he runs, he's just using it as a way to choose and groom more victims. But Gus. Jerome puts a gentle hand on his forearm. Without the children's testimonies, how much further can you go? I've already told you, I don't know. It's extremely rare for science to raise his voice. When he sees Jerome flinch, he quickly pulls back. In a calmer tone, he says, But I have to think of something. Jerome glances at his wristwatch. Look, I've got a class in half an hour. Science waves his large hands in the air. Yes, go, go. He returns to the window, staring out at the dying trees once again. We end at three. Then I'm seeing patients till around, oh, 6.30. The other man seems not to be listening anymore. So Jerome speaks louder, a bit more firmly. Why don't I swing by for you around 7? I'll buy you dinner, someplace cheap, he jokes. You won't have time, science says. You haven't packed for your trip yet, and your flight's tomorrow. Jerome is off to Chicago the next day to attend an academic conference. (laughs) He knows science, right? And that there's no time for discuss this further over dinner tonight we'll make it quick he says but science shakes his head and that's the end of that Jerome had already expected that science would take the Cardinal's decision hard but seeing him like this worries him he stands there not certain what to do what else to say after a few moments He reluctantly decides to move on with the rest of his day. Well, I'd better get going. Hmm, he will be okay? Hmm. Jerome waits, but science mind is too far away. So without another word, Jerome leaves the room. He begins to close the door behind him and then remembers that it's nearly time for science student consultations. So he decides to leave it open. He walks briskly down the corridor, but just two or three steps after he turns a corner, he bumps hard into someone. I'm sorry, Jerome apologizes and then finds that he has to tilt his head up to look up into the man's face. He's so tall, but he's also rather old, and Jerome finds himself laying his hands gently Over the man's form arms, almost skeletal beneath the long sleeves of a barong Tagalog, to steady him. So sorry. I'm afraid I wasn't paying attention. Are you alright? The man gestures toward a brown envelope that has fallen to the floor, and Jerome quickly stoops to pick it up, handing it back to him. Yes, thank you. The voice is deep, quiet, roughened by age. I'm alright. It's only when he speaks that Jerome recognizes who he is. He heard the voice at a news conference that aired on television just a few nights before. I am looking for Father Science Office. Yes, yes, of course. Jerome's curiosity is piqued. He briefly considers accompanying the visitor to Science Room and hanging around to find out why he's here but he knows that if he does, he'll be late for class. Down the corridor to your left, third room after the fire extinguisher cabinet. The man glances down the corridor in the direction Jerome is pointing, and then turns and looks straight into Jerome's eyes. Thank you, Father Lucero. Of course, you would know who I am. Jerome thinks as the man disappears around the corner. Science is trying to decide whether to feed the letter into the shredder or to file it away as a reminder of his continuing failure. When he sees the tall, thin man framed by the open doorway, he looks at Science waiting to be invited in. Although he is standing in the dim light of the corridor, Science can tell that the clothes of the man's barang Tagalog is fine, the embroidery finer. Yes, science stands. Father, the man makes no move to enter the office. May I help you? The man's eyes narrow, but his expression is quizzical. May we go for a walk, Father? It is a nice day for a walk. The man steps back into the corridor, the gesture and invitation, the light of one of the fluorescent lamps in the ceiling falling upon him. Science sees him more clearly then, hair almost completely white, thick eyebrows also going to white, pale, deeply lined skin drawn over the fine bones of his face. Sharp eyes, a, snow, a nose curved like a parrot's beak. Science is tall, but this man is even taller, about six feet five inches, in his baron and khaki-collared trousers. He seems like a long pale ghost. A flat brown envelope is tucked under one arm. He stands motionless with a light with a slight stoop he looks like an old man really, except for the small black watchful eyes now science recognizes him the director of the National Bureau of Investigation Francisco Lastimosa of course sir give me a moment the sun has deep behind a bank of fat gray clouds in the Branches of trees are swaying in a strong breeze. The two men walk, unhurried, along a narrow path lined with greenery on either side, with the old man in front of science, setting the pace. The path takes them farther away from the building that houses the anthropology department toward a grassy open space on the campus, dotted with trees. Further ahead, it forks at various points, depending on one's business. One might choose to head to the other departments and buildings on campus or, by a roundabout way, to the residence halls. Science is beside himself with the curiosity as to why the director has come to see him so unexpectedly. He already asked minutes ago when he first emerged from the building, but he received no answer. Science decides to wait respectfully for the director to talk, but the man seems in no particular rush to get down to business. When he finally speaks, it's to say, you'll get him yet, you know. Science stops and stares at the back of the man's head. Excuse me. Director Lastimoser likewise stops and then glances at Science. Your Monsignor Ramirez. He watches in mild amusement as the blood drains slowly from Science's face. You seem surprised, Father Science. Did you not think anyone else knew? Certainly no one else seems to care, the priest says, and it' comes out angrier, more bitter than he had intended. And he's not my Monsignor Ramirez. The old man shoves his hand in the pockets of his trousers and begins walking again. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes 3, Father. Surely you know it. Science takes a deep breath. To everything there is a season. And that... And a time to every purpose and under the heaven. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. The man continues. What are you trying to tell me, sir? Perhaps you've forgotten. Verse 17, Father. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work science reflects on the verse for a moment then sighs i've been at it for years sir you're a man of god you of all people must have faith in the possibility of a satisfactory outcome even if sadly long delayed faith in god yes faith in man to be honest i sometimes science voice trails off ah in man. He says, You and I both, Father. They walk again in silence for a minute or two. While you await God's time for the Monsignor, Father, I ask you to devote some of your time and your considerable intellect to a problem that I have brought to you. When he smiles, it is a sad and weary smile. I believe in light of your recent disappointment, you will find this is a suitable undertaking, I'm listening. <clears throat> we have the remains of a boy, Father Science. He was found this Monday in the Payatas dump site. The injuries are quite horrific. Director La Teposa shakes his head vigorously as though by doing so he can rob out the memory of what he's seen. Most of the internal organs have been carved out. The penis severed. The face mutilated beyond recognition. They both look up when they hear voices coming from the opposite direction. Two seminarians, one with a breviary in hand, are coming down with the path, talking and laughing. When they see science, they smile and nod respectfully. Extending the same courtesy to the director, the path is narrow, so the two men step aside to allow the seminarians to pass. When he satisfied that they they were out of earshot, the director continues, The case comes to us from the local police. Apparently, they found another corpse in February with very similar injuries. In both cases, they could not find any witnesses who had seen anything unusual that might have been related to the killings. Let me guess, that's as far as the investigations went. The director nods, life is cheap in that part of the city. Just yesterday, a market vendor was stabbed to death in a fight at Litax. He took up a prime selling spot on the roadside that somebody else wanted. Detex Road along Commonwealth Avenue and not far from the dump site has a teeming flea and wet market whose vendors spill over onto the avenue, sometimes occupying two to three lanes and hindering the flow of traffic. Between the lack of policing skills and the sheer volume of criminal activity that goes on there, the drugs, the rival gangs, the rapes, the random violence, the director lifts up both hands in a gesture of resignation. Have the victims been identified? The first boy has been Ryan Molina. The killer left of a shirt near the body that the boy's parents were able to recognize, and this second boy hasn't been identified yet. The director hands the envelope that has been tucked under his arm all this time to science. I know you've seen terrible things before, father, but this is different science opens the flap removes the contents and then studies them it's surreal he thinks the horror in the photographs set against the peace and quiet in this pocket of green against the normal flow of everyday life along Hatipuden Avenue bordering the campus the jeepneys the school buses The private cars ferrying their human cargo to and from their destinations in the city. He's aware of the director's eyes, watching his reaction. If you need a moment, father, he says. Science shuffles the photographs together and puts them back in the envelope. Thank you, sir. I'm alright. He returns to Director Lastimosa. But I'm not sure what I can do that your own people at the bureau can't. Father Science, I don't believe you can look at those photographs and think that we can do it on our own. My people can recognize a drug deal gone wrong, a car napping that turns into rape and murder. The director holds out the envelope to him again. His hands shaking slightly. This is different. Whoever did this is talking to us, and I believe you he can help us understand what he is trying to say. When science takes the envelope, the director grasps one of his hands firmly. And you and I both know, Father, if there is a second one, there could be very well be a third, or perhaps there already has been and we just don't know it yet. We must find him. Science looks down at the director's pale hand, its green veins bulging up beneath the thin skin from the tension in his grip. It's at this moment that the man appears to realize how tightly he's holding Science's hands. He loosens his grasp and steps back taking a moment to compose himself. Forgive me, father. He clears his throat, then fishes a handkerchief out of a pocket of his trousers and wipes his now damp forehead with it. I'll be honest with you. I'm shaken by this. I know you are too, aren't you? He searches Science's face for an answer. Science gives him a look that tells him, yes. But, what exactly are you proposing, sir? I have classes at my department here. I have administrative work and religious duties. I have research projects. Look, I know you're a busy man, and frankly, we can pay you for anything other than expenses. But if you have any time at all to spare, to consult on these murders, I must appeal to you to lend us that time. It's not just a question of spare time, sir. Science thinks back on all the cases he has consulted on that involved the Bureau. In most of them, he had been part of an independent panel of experts convened at the order of the President to investigate the crime. In all of them, he had found strong cause to question the bureau bureau's work methods and investigative practices and, ultimately, their findings. You must know that I'm not very popular with some of your people. I'm not sure they would appreciate my weight feeding into their turf, even at your invitation. You could become very unpopular very quickly. Science can tell from the man's lack of surprise or hesitation that the director has already considered and dismissed this. I'm not interested in popularity contest, father. I will talk to my staff. They can agree or disagree with me, but at the end of the day, it's my call. In the 18 months that I have been at the head of the bureau, I have not been wasteful with resources or cavalier in hiring outside expertise. I think I can fully justify bringing you on board. Now I know you've worked with some of our better boys before. The man is saying as they retrace their steps back to science building. Rustia in Soho speaks very highly of you. Science nods. Ading is a good man. The National Bureau of Investigation has precious few good men, and Fernando Rustia, Ading for short, at scene of the cre- operations, is one of them. A lower-level supervisor with some 20 years of largely unrewarded experience under his belt. He and Science had met nearly a decade before, Through science work with human rights organizations involved in the search and identification of desaparecidos or salvage victims under the Marcos dictatorship. Yes, yes, I'm trying. And here the man stops as though struggling to remember the words he wants to say and reaches out to touch science arm. His long fingers bent with arthritis resembling claws. I'm trying to get them to stay, the good ones. I'm trying to stimulate them, to remind them why, you know, why it is they came to us in the first place. Science nods, like most other intelligence and investigative bodies in the country. The NBI is understaffed, underfunded, and in dire need of upgrades to its facilities, equipment, and human resources. But it also suffers trust and integrity issues going all the way back to the dark days of the dictatorship. From technical questions over the proper recording of crime and custodianship of evidence— to accusations of inefficiency, corruption, and collusion with criminal elements. The Bureau has good pay people, to be sure, but many of them, like Rustia, are underpaid and burned out and have few avenues for advancement in either pay or possession with the, within the bri- bureaucracy. The two men start walking again. The director, a few paces ahead of Science. I've not been with the bureau long, and I don't imagine I'll be staying in my post very long either. I'm an old man, and there are are a lot of young guns who would love to take my place. Science nods again. Francisco Lastimosa had been a trial lawyer and embarked on a long and remarkably Untarnished career in the judiciary. When, the, when that part of his life was over, he served on company boards, government panels, committees of inquiry, but always somehow failed to land the high profile post, the juicy appointments. That ended about 18 months ago when his predecessor stepped down in the midst of corruption charges. The president had plucked him then out of semi-retirement and in a confluence of comption and good judgment, rare in Philippine politics, appointed him to the post despite protest from many quarters that he was a nobody and an old nobody at that. Now father it must be clear by now that I know a lot of you, about you. Your work for desaparecidos, for victims of disasters. I have great admiration for you. And without any arrogance, I must assume that you know a fair bit about me as well. Perhaps you will agree that you and I share a somewhat similar view of the world. And while I've never had the chance to work with you, I guess there's a first time now for everything. He faces science now. His expression both grim and earnest. I need your help. It is dark by the time the director returns to the bureau. He walks slowly down to the corridor to to his office and finds his middle-aged secretary still in the outer room. Slapping away at the computer on her desk. (coughs) Lose, it's late. Evening, sir. I had to finish filing some of this expense report. They're due on Monday. Monday is next week. Tonight, you have dinner with your family. Go home. She smiles. She types a few more lines into what looks to be a spreadsheet. Saves the file, then begins tidying tidying up the reports. Oh, by the way, she says, uh, Torny Arsinas dropped by earlier looking for you. He stands straighter now, shoulders back, as though bracing himself for a small violence. What a coincidence. I was just about to go looking for him. Luz turns off her computer. Would you like me to send him up? see you on my way out when he speaks his voice is quiet i don't suppose i have a choice so quiet that you can't hear him excuse me yes do do send him up she nods gathers up her things and heads to the door good night sir see you tomorrow good night he stands there until the door closes and then heads wearily to the inner office. He does not turn the lights on and crosses the carpeted room silently. He sinks into the large leather swivel chair and switches on a desk lamp, which bathes the desk area in a pale bluish white light. <laughs> and he waits. He does this off and is startled awake by the sound of the door in the outer room banging closed there is a sharp rap on his own door and it opens seconds later his visitors are not bothering to wait to be asked to come in good evening ben sir i have some papers for you to sign attorney benjamin arcinas holds the papers aloft as he crosses the room it's been a long day and his hair, often artfully arranged in large curls and dyed a shade of red that does not occur naturally on this earth, is limp and greasy. The director imagines that the air in the room has been rendered immediately noxious by Arsino's barely masked hostility. Yes, you can leave them on my desk, but please have a seat. Arsenas ignores their request and instead taps the sheaf of papers with one forefinger. I need them by tomorrow morning. And you will have them by tomorrow morning, the director says. After more than a year of working with him, he's no longer surprised at being ignored by Arsenas, So he adds, more firmly this time, but please have a seat. I need to discuss something with you. The other man takes a step forward, then stops, discuss, or have you already decided? When the director doesn't respond at once, he arrives at his own conclusions. You have, and you just called me in to tell me. We have to do what is necessary. Arsenas arch and eyebrow. Well, of course, if you think it's necessary. The... Attorney has been with the NBI for most of his working life. He is ambitious and self serving and does not trust outsiders. When Director Vlastimoza was new to the Bureau, he quickly sized up who was allied with whom within the organizational hierarchy. Arsinas was and is a fiercely loyal ally of Assistant Director, Philip Mapa, the man who had been tipped to head the bureau before Director Leste Moses surprise appointment was announced. Had Mapa been chosen, Arsinas would likely have been his deputy. <coughs> to the director, it's clear that this thwarted ambition is the key reason Arsinas has been so antagonistic toward him since he took the hem of the bureau. That antagonism has only been amplified by this plan to consult with another outsider, science, a man with whom Arsenas has locked horns before and whom he clearly considers a threat to his reputation and standing in the law enforcement community. Ben, I need you to cooperate with me on this. We need all the help we can get. You're swamped with work as it is. Everyone else has too much on their plate already, and we can hardly keep up. Oh, of course I understand the rationale, sir, he says, unable and willing to rein in his sarcasm. I just hope you've considered the impact of this move on the morale of your people. I have, and I am quite certain, that our people want to get to the bottom of this. The director stands and looks directly at him. You, most of all, Ben, am I right? There's nothing else our can do for now. He puts the papers on the desk and walks out. Thank you for listening to him, Himbing. Good night.